One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. On the eve of World War II, a young housewife named Alma Fielding found herself in the grip of a poltergeist, hell-bent on flinging China through the air, toppling over dressers, and leaving no egg uncracked in her London home. Her case caught the attention of the Hungarian ghost hunter Nandor Fodor, whose tests at the International Institute for Psychical Research led to ever-odder phenomena from Alma. A bird flew from her skirts, beetles crawled beneath her gloves, stolen jewelry materialized on her fingers. In her new book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, Kate Summerscale tells the story of an investigation that combines the supernatural and the subconscious, revealing the very real anxieties of a changing society. Kate Summerscale joins us from her home in London. Thanks so much for talking to me, Kate. Oh, it's a pleasure. So your book is the story of the ghost hunter Nandor Fodor and one of the cases he investigated of Alma Fielding. And it takes place at a time when England and most of Europe and America were teeming with ghost stories and mediums and seances and all of these spooky disturbances. What drew you to this particular ghost hunter and this particular ghost story? What I loved about this story was the way that two things collided, which were the um, interwar fascination with psychoanalysis and the unconscious mind and the fascination with ghosts and spirituality and seances. And Fodor was a sort of pioneer trying to use one discipline to explore the other, both of these kind of rather dodgy pseudosciences but genuine arenas for exploration about human emotion and the ways in which our secret desires and our griefs imprinted themselves on the physical world. So what was Fodor's background? How did he come to be a ghost hunter? He was a Hungarian immigrant, first of all, to New York City in the 1920s. And he had a background in law, but he became a journalist and then moved as a journalist to London in 1929. But his secret passion, his hobby, was uh, the supernatural. And he loved reading about ghosts. He loved speculating about the new scientific ways of interpreting supernatural phenomena. And so he was absolutely over the moon to get a job as a ghost hunter in the 1930s for one of the new psychical research organisations that had sprung up in London. Um, so his hobby became his life, 
and he was obsessed with finding proof of the supernatural but he was a a scrupulous ghost hunter he wasn't just interested in drumming up sensational stories he was also intent on exposing frauds and fakes Um, and to his discomfort he was finding there were more of those it seemed than than the real deal. How did Alma Fielding catch Fodor's attention? He read about her in a Sunday newspaper She, as soon as the poltergeist struck her house in February 1938, she got in touch with a newspaper which had been soliciting stories of the supernatural and suggested they come and see what was going on in her ordinary terraced home. And um, they came within hours. To begin with, the things she reported were things that happened to her when she was on her own, an icy hand on her shoulder which made her drop her crockery, a voice in her ear. But that weekend, the poltergeist's actions seemed to be manifesting in a way that others witnessed too. The bed moved in her room, glasses threw across and it was smashed against the wall. And her husband, Les, was in bed with her at the time and testified to this. Um, her 16-year-old son came to the room and was hit by some pennies and things were flying around. And also their lodger, George, um, who was very close to Alma, turned up in in their bedroom and um, witnessed this. And then when the reporters came the next day, they too saw things like can openers flying down the hall at speed that couldn't have been thrown by anyone, eggs and pieces of coal smashing themselves against walls. So it was a sort of violent hooligan-like activity that was going on and at really an astonishing rate the the fieldings had dozens of glasses and cups and plates were broken in the house that weekend and within days Fodor followed and came down to the house to see for himself this alleged supernatural activity the violence that the poltergeist was wreaking in in their home and he thought he hoped that this might be the story he'd been looking for all along, the truly um, gifted medium who had attracted a poltergeist and there might be verifiable uh, documented evidence of the poltergeist activity with which he could convince the world of the reality of supernatural experience. Was that different from what other mediums were experiencing? I mean, why would Fedor look at these events in Alma's house and say, aha, this is the real thing? Was it just the intensity of the events? It was the intensity and the fact that there were witnesses, neighbors, family, newspaper reporters. I mean, the the British public seemed to have been mad for poltergeist stories in this period. They were in the papers regularly. But usually, by the time the reporters turned up, they were just stories. There were things that had happened. Maybe there were a couple of witnesses, but they would be members of the same family and there were no independent witnesses. Whereas in this case, um, even before Fodor got there, he sent an assistant down to the house who came back very excited, saying he had himself seen things that were naturally impossible that he could only explain as supernormal events. And 
Alma seemed so bewildered, and so did the whole family. They didn't seem to welcome these events. She had no history in mediumship or, or performance. It seemed like they were an ordinary family that, that had been taken by surprise and had nothing to gain by what was going on. In, in fact, the poltergeist seemed to be causing a lot of distress. So unlike a lot of the cases that Fodor had investigated, which seemed a little bit more likely to be... Um, hoaxes, sort of drumming up support for supernatural acts or conjuring acts. This one was was quite creepy, and also there were lots of incidents which they could record in a semi-scientific way as having been witnessed, and they could measure distances and uh, probabilities. Well, and then the semi-scientific testing continues, right? Fedor takes her to the institute where he works to test her over the course of four months. So what do those tests look like? What was he testing for? Yeah, it was um, the institute for which Fodor was the chief ghost hunter, chief researcher, was in um, Kensington in, in central London in a much grander house than a building than anything Alma knew. And um, the idea was they, they got excited about the poltergeist and they wondered if they transplanted her to another setting, whether these events would continue. Because there was a general understanding at the time that poltergeists were often attached to individuals rather than places. And it would be much stronger evidence of a supernatural if, if the um, poltergeist worked its magic in very controlled conditions. So they took her to this institute and saw whether whether anything weird and verifiable could happen there. And it did. She seemed to pluck objects from thin air. And then they got more intent on trying to shore up their evidence by checking for, that she couldn't be cheating in any way. And she was subjected to strip searches on arrival at the Institute to make sure she didn't have any objects concealed on her, around her clothes or body and um, then would be watched closely during seances and under different conditions and by different people, including conjurers, other psychical researchers and ghost hunters would visit and watch. And so she became sort of paraded like this um, extraordinary experimental creature who could generate supernatural phenomena. And um, Fodor became increasingly excited that he had found somebody who was really special and would make his name as a psychical researcher and save the institute, which was in some financial difficulty. But the more pressure he put on her, the more he also had to act as a kind of ghost buster, trying to find out if she was fraudulent. And so he took up this strange position as both her champion and her a persecutor or enemy because he had to check whether she could be cheating. And over time, he came to see some evidence of fraud. Yeah, that push and pull between belief and skepticism is super interesting, especially because the whole time that Fedora is trying to bend over backwards, proving that Alma's poltergeist is real, despite, you know, the occasional evidence of fraud that he finds, you write that he's also suing the psychic magazine for libel because they claimed he was really hostile to his own profession and like didn't believe mediums which is super 
weird. Mm. Super weird. Yeah, it's sort of mind-bendingly contradictory, some of this stuff. He's almost a man who's like uh, having to fight against himself because on the one hand, he's the champion of the supernatural and he wants nothing more than to find evidence of, of the truth of ghosts and proof of poltergeists. On the other hand, in the, the circles of the true believers, the spiritualists, he becomes a kind of enemy figure because he's exposing so many mediums as false in the course of his attempts to find the true one. And he did sue the leading psychic magazine in England, which had accused him of being too much of a sceptic and being a bully towards mediums and not respecting them sufficiently. So he's in this position of, of um, being at once the protector of, of Alma and in, a sort of impresario who's invested everything in her, but also in the back of his mind knowing he has to test her to the limit, and yet that is the very thing that will get him in trouble with the psychic press. So he's caught between sort of faith and science, and he's trying to participate in both. Yeah, I definitely saw him as kind of a bridge between science and seance in this period. Mm. And I wonder, in the broader scheme of things, what is the relationship between these two fields? Was there a way in which a seance could be a science? Yeah, well, the, the psychical research was actually a, a kind of, in the late 19th century, a sort of seedbed for psychoanalytic ideas, in fact, and for all kinds of psychological thinking about the subliminal mind. Many psychical researchers did think that the supernatural telepathy and so on was um, not the work of disembodied spirits returning from the dead, but of the subconscious mind that could actually... Um, move objects that could have generate its own kind of electricity. And of course, this was at a time when all kinds of marvels were becoming commonplace, like being able to talk to people in, in different places on the telephone, being able to see people in different times at the movie theater, telegraphs, gramophone records. So in a way, the world of the spirits or of the subconscious mind was construed as possibly of on a par with those kinds of um, invisible rays that could be transmitting true things and that the people investigating might turn out to be scientists or might turn out to be cranks. But at the time, the whole thing was up for grabs. And that was fascinating to me because there were so many people who were serious thinkers, but also sort of serious imaginative thinkers and um, and some of them very gullible and some of them very intriguing and far-sighted who was mingling in these seances and um, and the psychoanalytic societies as well. Yeah, like Harry Houdini, another Hungarian hellbent on proving that mediums were just illusionists like him. Yeah. And uh, yes, there's Houdini, who Fodor knew, um, who in some ways was a similar figure to him because he was busting all these mediums as frauds. But Unlike Houdini, Fodor didn't want to do that. He wanted to find the, the true magic. Um, and then there was Arthur Conan Doyle, who converted to spiritualism after the death of a son in the First World War. That was another interesting thing to me, was the way that the stage had been set for the poltergeists by the trauma of the Great War 
in which so many had died, and in fact the flu pandemic that followed it, which generated the sort of craze for seances in the 1920s. So even though I'd associated all this kind of passion for the supernatural with the 19th century, I found out that actually in England, that in the 1920s and 1930s were the time of the greatest popularity for spiritualism and seances, and it stemmed from grief. Well, speaking of grief and suppressed grief, this is also the time of psychoanalysis and Freud. And we're seeing way more attention paid to the unconscious and to buried trauma. So how does Fedor draw on this other new field to explain the possibility of poltergeists? He became interested in the possibility that the kinetic forces by which objects were thrown round rooms would seem to move mysteriously, um, to appear from nowhere, then to disappear, might not be the work of ghosts, but of the unconscious mind, and in particular, repressed sexual desire and frustration. I mean, it was noted in the 1920s and 30s that many poltergeist attacks took place around adolescent girls, servant girls typically. Alma Fielding was older than that, but she was a woman. She was she seemed to be frustrated in her marriage, sexually and otherwise, as she disclosed to Fodor. And the events that were taking place around her, Fodor began to suspect were being caused by her, not consciously, but uh, either either unconsciously, but physically, or more interestingly to him, um, that she could use her mind. Her mind was sort of springing out. The repressions were causing objects to move around her. Uh, a bit like um, in the film Carrie, you know, the sort of psychokinesis where a, a woman's uh, or girl's extreme sort of bottled upness and repression bursts forth in, in supernatural events around her. And Fodor wondered whether this was what was going on with Alma Fielding. And he became all the more intrigued by this because in that case he would have not only a true case of the supernatural on his hands, but also proof of his new theory, which he derived from the writings of Freud, uh, but which he thought might be applicable to to psychic activity as well. I wonder how gender and class play into this, because it is mostly women, and it is mostly working class women who end up being mediums in this narrative. Though, I mean, there are, of course, all kinds of countesses hovering around <laughs> who are very interested in spiritual phenomena and feel shivers and whatever, but the mediums themselves generally aren't nobility. They don't have titles. So how does the supernatural tie into the role that women and the lower classes had in society at this time? Mm, I became um, convinced that uh, it was a route to power in a sort of pragmatic way for many women. Um, they could earn money. They could command audiences. So these working class women who had no other means really of, uh, of self-expression or, or importance or dominating, telling other people what to do, um, could sit on a stage, read people's minds apparently, or take uh, notice of the spirits, listen, be communicated with through the spirits, 
and, um, and, and be in control of events while presenting themselves still in a sort of traditional way as passive vessels, vessels for the spirits um, through which, you know, voices were emerging. So it seemed like a wonderful kind of trick of power in a way, a way of, of both playing to the female role and also um, a power grab. Um, but beyond that, I also started to notice that a lot of the women who were performing as mediums and who were working in psychic circles and making themselves experimental subjects for psychical research had uh, suffered grief and trauma in their lives, for instance, by the loss of children. One famous psychic, Eileen Garrett, had lost three infant sons to meningitis before she turned to the psychic world and became a medium. And the idea that this, that this world was also a way of connecting with the dead for people who were grief-stricken, women who were grief-stricken in particular, whose worlds would have revolved more around those children who had gone, um, but also as a way of, of expressing emotions that were not easily expressed in society and particularly not easily expressed by working-class women, relatively uneducated, who were less likely to have access to, I don't know, art school or novel writing, or some of the, the means of, of telling one's story in an oblique way that, um, that, that would have been available to the better off and to, to the more affluent classes. And so I started to see some of these um, apparently supernatural events as a kind of performance art, as a kind of way of describing weird emotions and taboo emotions and hidden emotions through other people's stories that, um, that in, in other circumstances would have found other outlets. And in male lives, men's lives may, may well have found other outlets and um, that made the whole psychic scene seem all the, all the richer. It felt as if there is something there, whether you believe in the supernatural or not, that is being communicated. Something real is being enacted and often enacted not just in words or pictures, though people did do automatic writing and drawing supposedly by the spirits, channeling the spirits. Um, but through bodies, you know, these women would be there sort of physically in the room and their, their bodies would one way or another, whether in voices or, or sort of spasms, be um, expressing things and telling stories. Well, I had no idea that there was this class distinction, too, among ghosts themselves, not just people. <laughs> no, nor me. And I think it was something that particularly developed in the in the 20s and 30s with the arrival of the poltergeist, which wasn't given a name in England until the arrival of a Romanian peasant girl in the 1920s who um, seemed to have a poltergeist attached to her. And then the word entered common currency and was used by the press. And it was the poltergeist in particular. By the late 30s, the newspapers, many newspapers, ran articles saying, um, you know, be aware, these poltergeists, they're not like the ancient ghosts of old who would float through the halls of stately homes or crumbling castles. These are vandals. These are lower-class ghosts. They're hooligans, <laughs> and um, they're not seemly. They work their um, roughness in a, like gangsters in 
lower middle class and working class homes. So they were particularly, as I hadn't realised, poltergeists were, um, they were noisy, rowdy, common, vulgar ghosts that were associated with the lower classes. And there was a very clear line drawn between them and the more ethereal, floaty <laughs> ghosts of the castle and of the sort of 19th century Gothic tradition. These were modern, um, subversive, provocative ghosts, sort of interlopers. And that seemed very, um, a very sort of fun and radical idea to me that there was some kind of recognition that this havoc that was being wreaked in these working class homes that was drawing the press and um, getting newspaper stories was in some way a kind of working class self-expression, that it was um, that it was a sort of intervention from below and that there was some kind of discontent and unrest and unsettledness being expressed, which was quite distinct from the 19th century conception of the ghost. And I could see how, in a way, this was sort of channeling disquiet about the role of the, the changing role of the working class in Britain at the time, and that the working classes had become much more Americanized and much more aspirational. There was a sort of aspirational spirit abroad that was faintly, at least, threatening to the British establishment. And the poltergeists, in some funny way, were a conduit for that. So do you think that some of Alma Fielding's experiences were real in the end? And did, did Fodor think they were real, even though he did find, you know, evidence of fraud? I went into this um, essentially skeptical about ghosts and um, but determined to open myself to the possibility in order to inhabit the lives and minds of the protagonists of the story who are completely open to the possibility of the supernatural in one form or another. Um, and I uh, was sort of confused and startled by many of the things I came across in the research that, uh, that didn't seem readily explicable in natural terms. But in the end, I, um, I still don't believe that true supernatural events took place. I think there are explanations and there could be explanations found with a sceptical mind for, for all of them. Fodor, on the other hand, thought that Alma was, um, ended up cheating, but that the original events that took place in her house were real. And he had witnesses to that. So he thought there was a genuine poltergeist force to begin with and that it was generated by her subconscious mind and by trauma in her past. Um, I, I, th I thought he was probably, he was right to sort of push to find out why these things were happening and that there was something real that she was trying to communicate. But my ultimate um, goal is not to establish whether or not the supernatural events took place in her home, but to try to understand what those events can tell us about uh, her life, her experience, her psyche, and Fodor's interpretations 
and the wider world in which they found themselves. The climate of the time, particularly the fear about the um, the Second World War, which was very much on everyone's minds, and the the sense of uncertainty and anxiety that was being channeled through some of these supernatural events. So I I think these things are just beliefs in the end, you know, and mine remain. I think it's unlikely that there's real supernatural activity in this story, but I don't think it's impossible. Um, but I I know that to somebody less sceptical, they will find um, evidence in this story that, that it's very likely that there was. Uh, regardless of whether it's real or not, it's very expressive of real emotions. Even when Alma was fraudulent, that didn't invalidate her as, as a human being and it did not invalidate the story she was trying to tell. We have links in the show notes to Kate Summerscale's new book, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, and some of our favorite movies about poltergeists and psychic experiences. We've also got links to some other work on the American Scholar website, like a previous episode that I did on women's roles in American spiritualism and other fringe religions, as well as Sudip Bose's essay on how a seance led a Hungarian connoisseur of the occult to discover a lost Robert Schumann musical. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.